Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 77. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Paul Gambles. He's the co-founder of MBMG Group. They're recognized as a leading provider of personal advisory, corporate advisory, insurance services, private equity, accounting and auditing, legal services, property solutions, and estate planning. He's also a director and chief investment officer of MBMG Investment Advisory, an SEC regulated investment advisor with assets in excess of $1.2 billion. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say, Paul, um, I mean, do you want to give us an introduction to your to your business and, and to yourself? Sure. So uh, obviously, I've known yourself for many years, Tim. Um, I, I came out to uh, to Thailand for uh, for two years because I was uh, offered an opportunity here, uh, and uh, and that was twenty six years ago, I think it is, and I, and I haven't managed to find the way out since then. So uh, these <laughs> days, I run a, a global investment advisory business from uh, from here in Southeast Asia. Um, it's it's a great part of the world in many ways. It's uh, from a lifestyle point of view, it's a good place to live. But in terms of uh, a lot of things that are uh, happening. And changing in the world these days, uh, it's a it's a very good place to be positioned to uh, to see a great deal of that, and uh, hopefully try to try to make sense of it. Um, so, I mean, these days we're a we're a sort of a boutique advisory firm. Um, we we tend to deal with uh, mainly high net worth individuals or with family offices, um, a few institutions here and there, um, and uh, basically uh, we. Uh, we get paid to, as I say, try and make sense of what's happening in the world, what's happening in markets, and uh, and tell people what they should be doing uh, to try and take advantage of that. You're based in uh, Thailand, but is your clientele uh, expat, predominantly expat Brits, or is it global citizens? I mean, what 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 kind of people do you, do you act for? It's it's a pretty it's a pretty broad mix these days. Originally, it was more sort of traditional, um, you know, expats. But uh, these days, it's 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 really a very very broad church. Um, there's uh, there's uh, family offices that are based here in Thailand that are predominantly uh, you know established Thai families. Uh, there's there's um, entrepreneurial uh, wealth around the region. Um, institutions. We we get a lot of institutional work from. Um, Western institutions who, you know, try to understand much better what's going on in the ground here in Southeast Asia. So it's um, it's actually a pretty pretty broad spread these days. It's grown from really focusing on uh, on you know expat high net worth individuals to um, anyone that uh, and any kind of organisation that, uh, that that you know we feel we can add value to, or more importantly, seeing as they're writing the checks, they feel they can add value, we can add value to. Um, I was just going to ask in terms of the, without going into too much detail, what kind of the, if you have such a thing as a typical client, what the kind of the asset allocation profile is for, for those kind of people in terms of the equ- equ- equities, bonds, and a- anything else you might be using? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Um, and and the, the bottom line is, is you know, there probably isn't such a, such a typical thing. Um, one of the things that, you know, I know we're on a, a very similar page is, uh, is trying to understand uh, the the role of risk in portfolios and um, it, you know too much of our, our profession I, I think focuses on 
the, the part that people can't really control. They, they, they try to focus on, on the return element. And in a sense, you know, from a marketing perspective, I guess that makes sense. It's, it's, it's sexier. It's, it's the reason why people invest in the first place. You know, they invest to generate a return. But, um, um, you know, I know from, you know, conversations we've had over the years, Tim, you're, you're, I think more in my camp of, of, of thinking that, you know, risk is really the, the kind of crucial thing here. Um, A, it's important because, um, you know, risk, risk really is a, is a much more defining, it's, it's a much easier aspect of investment to, to, uh, to define. And, and you can really try and personalize that for, uh, for each investor. You, you know, I think you've always talked about, uh, portfolio utility, Tim. So, you know, how much, how much risk should people be taking if, um, if they really don't need to be, you know, generating outsized returns because they've already got pretty substantial pots of money, like, like a lot of our clients have. Well, in that case, you know, it's it's more about preservation than it is about speculation. So mm. we, we tend to start from the point of view of how much risk should uh, should each each uh, investor be taking, uh, and when we understand that, then we, we, because we feel we can control that, then we feel we'll uh, we'll start to to look at optimizing allocations for. Um, for for what the actual return should be, and um, what that tends to do is, it means we're probably on a just on a sort of a default or a basic allocation level. We we probably tend to have much lower levels of unprotected equity participation than I think you know most of the sort of standard models that you that you'd see out there, the seventy thirties or whatever, um, simply because. As I say, you know, we look at what a we start off by looking at what a portfolio can lose and how much risk it should have in there, and uh, and that tends to be a lot lower than, you know, most of the marketing people might suggest. What is your exposure in, in a very general sense to, to to fixed income or credit product, to bonds, in other words? Yeah, no, good question. Um, and, and again, I think the big differentiator there that we draw that that, that probably sets us aside from most people is that. Um, you know, we, we look at just how much of a um, how much of a correlation there is between various different types of bonds and you know equity market beta, equity market risk. And so, for instance, we've been pretty negative about the corporate bond market for the last year or two, uh, particularly the um, the, the um, lower levels, uh, low credit levels, the, the um, lowest levels of investment grade, and the uh, and the higher grade, high yield, uh, sorry, high yield type type uh, um, exposures, because frankly, we just see those as being equity or quasi equity risk, particularly in extremists, but offering, you know, a much, much lower level of return. So, um, and I think th- this is probably one area where, where we differ, Tim, but I, I still see um, US treasuries as being, um, you know, the go-to, it's going to be the the safe asset in any any kind of meltdown. So we, we were very big buyers of treasuries, um, when the uh, when the ten year yield blew out to sort of three twenty five uh, last year, um, and and that was partly because we saw them at, the, at that pricing as being um, a diversification against equity risk. They seemed pretty much to to reach the level where they were likely to be inverse to equity risk, but also just because they got too cheap. We now have a big dilemma in that we've been selling off or at least cutting down a lot of the duration on those treasuries. Um, simply because they got too expensive, um, and so we, we've now got a much, a much lower duration on the uh, on the treasuries we're holding. But we we still see those as being uh, a really solid diversifier. Whereas credit to us, you know, corporate, 
particularly the uh, say the, the the lower level of investment grade, particularly higher yield. You know that to us is not a diversifier at all. And what that does is it means we then end up looking for even more diversifiers. Um, and again, back to an area where we probably do agree, gold has has uh, has. I think always been a fairly staple diversifier in our portfolios for the last 20 years or so. Um, and it's becoming more important now that treasuries have got uh, just a little bit too expensive. Mm. Are you not tempted by the bonds of other governments, especially within Asia, that could look better than the US? Not really, um, because I, I think, again, a lot of work's been done on this. Um, and I know that Tim, I think, is more convinced by those arguments than, than I am. But um, I think the problem is it's, it's, it's as much psychological as it is logical in that um, the, the, the U.S. dollar and the U.S. Treasury still appears to be the likely sort of default in any kind of credit event, any kind of risk event. You know, the, uh, the global financial crisis was really a, a U.S.-centric risk event, and yet, you know, um, by late 2007, what was being bid up was U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries. And I mean, ironically, they were both getting bid up at the time where U.S. government decided to uh, to go and adopt the most profligate fiscal policies. So yeah. if, if it happened then, I think, you know, we're still in a investment market mindset where rightly or wrongly, you know, treasuries are still, you know, they are the uh, the asset of last resort. And ultimately, you know, U.S. government can go and print as much currency as it wants um, within reason. Whereas, you know, some of these Asian governments that have a much sounder fiscal position probably aren't able to do that. So, you know, I get all the logical reasons why you might want to be holding bonds from somewhere where the, uh, the, the fiscal position, you know, the balance sheets, you know, are a lot sounder. But in reality, you know, it didn't play out that way last time, and we're not convinced it's it's necessarily going to play out that way this time. So, um, with you know, unlike the corporate debt where we're clearly negative, I think if you look at some of the Asian debt, we're more skeptical. We just don't know whether it's going to work or not. Treasuries, however bad the American fiscal position gets, we're we're pretty confident that they're still going to be, you know, the asset of last resort that people end up end up rotating into. And I think you've got to look how much money is is, you know, circulating around American financial markets probably to to understand that because um, when people start dumping U.S. equities, you know, you've got all this dollar cash that's awash, and you've also got people that are hunting for dollars. That just seems to drive, you know, every instance so far, that just seems to have driven up treasuries when we've got into these, you know, in extremist problems. And as I say, I, I don't think that we're seeing anything necessarily that's, uh, that's changed that so far. The next crisis might be very interesting and it might do that. And, and, you know, one thing that we've been saying for a while is that the really interesting place to look at is perhaps China more than anywhere else because you know, we see all these comments about how, you know, China debt is going stratospheric and whatever. And in, in one sense, it's true, but from such a low base and, you know, with such a different dynamic about it, um, with such a different, you know, control over the way that it's done, that actually we think China is probably one of the most interesting places in terms of what it's likely to do for fiscal policy going into the, uh, and going through the next crisis. You know, in 2008, China didn't have a financial crisis in the same way that the rest of the world did. And it's, it's unclear to us 
whether um, in the next global financial crisis, again, China will just because of the way that it runs its policy and the the amount of policy space that there is because of that, it's unclear to us whether China is going to get you know dragged into it or manage to sort of elegantly sidestep it a little bit like it did last time. We are we are getting into the realm of of, of social responsible investing arguments here because I remember um, meeting with a client. Oh, it's probably about a decade ago now, and it was a couple and long standing long standing clients of ours. And um, we were having a portfolio review, and Mrs. Mrs. Client says, "So, well, I'm not sure I like this holding in BAT. You know, I'm not sure I, you know, I'm not sure I can endorse tobacco investing." And then Mr. Client says, "Yeah, but have you seen how much money you've made?" And that that <laughs> argument did kind of swing things, which was, you know, I, I, I you know, I don't really feel very happy about this, but on the other hand, I'm perfectly happy with 150 percent return. And China, China gets to the heart of that because, from a a moral perspective, there's no way on earth that I would. I could realistically consider embracing China risk in any sense. And yet, you know, it's clearly going to be an interesting market for the foreseeable future. And arguably, uh, you know, if it's not yet a superpower, then it will be a contender um, with, uh, with the US. Absolutely. You talk about a credit event and the next crisis. Where do you see that coming from and, and in what sort of time frame? <sighs> okay, so... Again, two really good questions. One of them probably almost impossible to answer. Um, oh, yeah, I realise it's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, just if, you, if you guys know, tell me. Yes, I'm absolutely. Sure I'll work that out. Yeah. Um, so where, where's it coming from? I mean, th- there's a glib answer to that, which is it's it's, it's coming from the amount of um, excess indebtedness that's that's been built up globally. Um, you know, if you if you look at the run up in uh, global credit. Well, uh, I think it's 2001 to 2008, almost perfectly tracks 1921 to 1929. Um, and um, so that, that for us is, is why we ended up getting into the global financial crisis, because there was just far too much credit. There's, you know, it's far too much debt had been created, far too much indebtedness, and a lot of that, you know, linked to, um, to, to very dubious quality assets and, and a very questionable, um, you know, capability to repay as well. So, so that's, that's what got us into the crisis. The problem is we didn't really ever get out of that crisis. So, you know, 1929 and the Great Depression, as um, appalling as it may have been, it, it, in some senses it did actually fix the problems. We, we did have some sort of a reset. It took a very long time and it probably took World War II to actually, you know, really come in there and finish off the, the reset process. But it did actually generate something of a reset. Um, we haven't really had that post-GFC. Um, and what we saw was, you know, some degree of um, restructure, some degree of, of, of balance sheet improvement. But, you know, we're now back above the uh, GFC crisis levels and, um, and and pretty much globally as well. In some places far, far worse than others and some places with far greater constraints than others. So, you know, globally, way too much debt, way too... Uh, 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 not you know, not inefficient or insufficient, way too insufficient capacity to service that debt. Asset prices bid up um, to unsustainable levels because of that debt. The, the place that actually looks worse, though, if you if you try and look at it, the the, the major sort of centre, I think, of the next crisis could well be Europe because um, the, the problems there look far worse than anybody, and. Added to that, they've got the, uh, the the kind of shackles of having 
you know, both hands tied behind their back in the in the Eurozone by being constrained by this this you know ridiculous construct of the single currency. So that's you know, you've got a you've got a really bad banking system in Europe, you've got extreme levels of debt in Europe, you've got very little fiscal space because of the fact that you've got the single currency. So I, I think you know Europe is likely to be the, the epicenter. Um as to when this starts, you know, that's 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 very difficult. And again, um, you know, I think having known Tim for, for, for many years, you know, Tim is one of the few people in and around markets that, that's able to make, you know, that connection, I suppose, between the macro and what happens in the markets. A lot of people, a lot of uh, market professionals don't seem to worry too much about macro, um, don't necessarily understand too much about it. And it's... Um, it's 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 probably a little bit of a curse for people like like Tim. It's almost sort of you know being like Cassandra, I suppose. You know, you can see what's happening, you can tell people, but uh, but but most people aren't believing it because they don't look that far ahead. Now, um, that's not really an answer to when it's likely to come. But I I, I think twenty twenty is likely to be a very difficult year for economies. Um, it's, it's probably not going to be so bad in the markets because I think we're going to see. A huge amount of fiscal stimulus um, absolutely rammed into markets, and that could, you know, that could just keep uh, all the plates spinning for for another year or two, or who knows how much longer. Um, so I think it's, I think it's the, you know, when 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 does the event happen? The event happens when Wiley Coyote actually looks down and realizes that you know there isn't any solid ground underneath him anymore. Um, and uh, so that could be that could be next year. It could be the year after. Very difficult to say, unfortunately. But I mean, being a bit cynical about it, couldn't you also say that the the event happens when the last bear capitulates and throws in the towel? <laughs> that's right. Um, I think I think that's probably true. Um, yeah, whether it's last bear, last bull, whether it's wily coyote. I mean, it's it's when we it's when we realise what a mess we're in, frankly, um, and uh, that we we are in a mess. I think I think the thing that is going to um, really gloss over keep on glossing over how bad things are is um is the fact that you know we've got this sort of circumstance next year where it's election year in the states um and like like most politicians you know trump has um an almost you know pathological need for for um adoration and and, and approval there's a there's a thing called uh Histrionic personality disorder, or HPD, and I think most most politicians, you know, tend to have that. It's it's a need to, for for approval and adoration, and unfortunately, most politicians are the kind of people who are least likely to be a, a, approved or adored. Did you hear about how he actually started to run for president? Just to back that that claim up. <laughs> No, well, apparently it's Gwen Stefani's fault because um, (laughs) he found out that she had more fans and she was being paid more. So, (laughs) so therefore, he hired a bunch of people to sort of to show the news network, the you know the the network that actually he was more popular. So he paid them to sort of mob him as he came out and and. to talk and then from there he he went on to to become president i mean i i started to watch the beginning of michael moore's um documentary about it and i haven't finished it but my jaw literally just hit the floor and it was it was from that which is astonishing sadly that's all that's all too believable uh, but um but i mean if you think about you it could, from, you from couldn't make it up could you sorry you couldn't make yeah, it up I mean, no, the the the, um, the the facts that we have today are way stranger than any fiction anybody could 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 create for sure. Um, but uh, but I think I think the, the problem is that 
you know, that kind of, of narcissism is likely to translate into um, into the most extreme kind of fiscal policy, fiscal stimuli that we've ever seen next year. There, there's no way that, uh, you know, Trump is going to want to go, you know, quietly into that good night. So um, I, I think, you know, the whole re-election campaign, uh, thanks, Gwen Stefani, is, is going to be built on this idea of, um, you know, making the, uh, the the economy look as good as possible. And I think we're going to see, you know, attempts to, to force through, you know, outrageous levels of QE, fiscal stimuli, you know, tax reforms, whatever. Um, and, and I know that, you know, a lot of people tend to say, well, you know, there's only so much control a president has over those things. The uh, the the legislature is where you know finance bills start and whatever. But um, um, I think those people need to look at the way that um, the sort of fairly hapless uh, Jerome Powell has been tied up in knots by Trump tweets to realise that uh, bullied. He's been just bullied into capitulating. Absolutely. But I think I think the Democrat House are likely to start facing some of that treatment as well. And I'm not sure I'm not sure they're going to be able to stand up to it too well. To be fair, I think they're pushing against an open door because that's been the the, the Fed policy, isn't it, really? Just to just to print money and and keep going. But I think going back to your your comment earlier about being bullish about US Treasuries, when the when you become a bear of US Treasuries, I think that's when you'll have the crisis because, as you say, as long as governments are able to borrow and as long as their yields are low, then there's, there will not be a crisis. It's only when mm. the market realises that the governments are going to be in hock for bailing out the banks again that their debt will start to be tainted by the, the risk and then, then it becomes, well, I'm not actually buying government debt which is supposed to be safe. I'm actually buying debt that's going to be bailing out the banks again, which isn't as safe. The governments are, have no no incentive, if you like, to change what they're doing as long as they're able to borrow. I, th- I think that's right. But I think, you know, we have to remember the, the US capacity for borrowing, um, for printing, for QE is... It's not infinite, but it's, it's probably way higher than any of us can envisage. Whereas um, in Europe... You know, it's very, very finite. It's very limited, uh, and and it's you know it's been happening on a scale here. You know, we've seen um, ECB out there buying. You know, some months I think it was more than twice the amount of corporate bond issuance that was going on in the eurozone. So um, I think you know we've, we've we've seen that done to the absolute max in Europe without there being um, any benefit from, you know, bank balance sheet recapitalization. Uh, and so, you know, Europe, Europe to me looks very, very sick. And it has this this very significant constraint on, um, on, on how much more it can continue to do that uh, because of, uh, as I say, you know, the, the shackles of a, of a single currency and, and the rules that that entails. So, um I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we see the U.S. Uh, running out of that space because I think that you know the warning signs and the eruptions will happen in Europe a long time before then, and it'll, it'll, that's why I think the uh, the next crisis is far more likely to be a eurozone-centric crisis than anywhere else. On the topic of um, on the topic of bonds, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, one of the the most um, uh, intimidating meetings I ever had with a, in this case, a prospective client was, was back in the dark days of 2008. And it was a guy who'd, 
He'd been a city analyst and he'd relocated up to Edinburgh because um, he could see, he says he could see the system just, just unraveling before his eyes. So he kind of took all his chips off the table and, uh, and, and went up there with his family. And I went up really just to, to, to try and um, ad- advise him of the, what we felt, the wisdom, the merit of this, this fund that we, we were using at the time called the Wealthy Nations Bond Fund. And the Wealthy Nations Bond Fund, clue is in the title, it basically consists of debt only issued by creditor countries. So at the time, I think US 10-year treasuries probably yielding around 4%. And this fund, which invested, it was a long-only fund, invested in things like debt issued by the likes of Hong Kong, Qatar, Singapore, the UAE, and so on and so forth. So very Asian, very Middle Eastern, very sort of resources, commodities, sort of rich countries issuing this stuff. Anyhow, if, if, if treasuries yielded 4%, then this fund yielded 8%. And you could then have that hedged into a, a, a currency of your choice. And we, we elected to go with Singapore dollars. Anyhow, so I was chatting to this guy about the merits of this thing. And he said, well, it's all very well, but you know, I, I foresee a, a, a decade-long deflationary depression. And bear in mind, this is 10 years ago. And he, he's, he's been proven pretty, pretty, pretty well right on this. So he said, I'm putting my money into long-dated gilts, long-dated bunts, long-dated US treasuries, and a shitload of gold, and all, all of which will have worked like a charm. And I merely, point, I merely pointed out, well, why would you own US treasuries when you could own this fund, which is A, objectively more creditworthy, and B, yields twice as much? And his answer was extremely instructive. His answer was, because the US has got all the nukes. <laughs> and, and, and as a response, there's no way you can come back from that. It's like when they yeah. say, you know, a good lawyer you know, never asks a question without knowing what the answer is going to be. You can't, you can't answer that. There's no riposte to that because he's just extrapolated out to a level that, you know, I mean, ideally won't, won't necessarily happen, but to give him his due, he's not wrong. The US does, is, is still the, the dominant military superpower. It's a bit like gold. It's it, you know, owning gold. You own it as a hedge against an environment you never you never hope to experience. So there's a kind of para- there's a paradox there. And in the same way, in the same way, you wouldn't really want to own treasuries for that specific reason because you don't really want a, your portfolio to enter a, a shooting war. No, no, but 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 you don't mind having that priced in there. Sure. Be great to track him down, Tim, and see what he thinks I, I, now. I'll have to. I'll have to get back in touch. And of course, I'm I'm missing the the the, the crowning irony of all this. So this this guy, and I'm not going to name him because it wouldn't be it wouldn't be fair. But he he he'd done all the right things, you know, after the fact, you know, with with hindsight. So it it it, it done all this stuff and got, got his portfolio in, in the in sort of optimal position to be braced for whatever whatever came about. And the and the sort of the, the piece de resistance of this anecdote is that his new next door neighbour turned out to be Fred Goodwin. No. <laughs> and so, so his next one over started getting bricks thrown through every window in the house, probably. And, it, and, um, he, and he'd left the, the city for the... the and uh, and he left the, the city for the safe haven safety. of Edinburgh. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> irony. How do you see the... Um, Paul, how do you see the economy out there in Asia? And over the, how long have you been there for? So it's uh, 26 years now. 26 years. Wow. Yeah. So when were you last in London? Well, so I, I travel back fairly regularly, right. back uh, a few times a year. But um, um, yeah, I, I think uh, things have obviously changed quite dramatically here. But I mean, the, the, the biggest 
you know, single factor has been the emergence of China to the to the, you know, financial and economic significance that uh, that it has today. Um, and it's a something really interesting happened this week that that um, you know got picked up on the uh, on the news here, but I don't know if it made quite such a, a global impression. And that is, there was the um, there was a meeting of ASEAN, the Southeast Asian nations, uh, and on the back of that, uh, there was a, a meeting of a, a thing called RCEP, uh, which is a it's basically a sort of um, free trade. I guess it's the Asian equivalent of the of the EU, if that's not being too unfair to it. Um, don't tell and, me they're thinking oh, of making a single <laughs> currency. Please don't tell me that. No, no, no they're not. They're not doing that. Oh, Look, thank well, God. not yet. But, um, but but sadly, that's the way these things. Yeah, often end up going. But um, um, the the interesting thing that happened this week with RCEP, RCEP has been in the works for, I think, seven years now and hasn't actually got off the ground yet. They haven't managed to get, you know, treaties signed or anything. Um, but um, the so you've got the ASEAN nations, you've got um, Australia, New Zealand, um, Japan, Korea, um, China, and India. And um, India basically sort of after seven years of, of trying to work out a deal, uh, stomped off from the, uh, from the negotiating table in, uh, in high dudgeon saying, look, we, uh, we can't sign up to this because, um, frankly, it's all weighted far too um, one-sidedly in favor of China, which um, I'm, I'm sure it is. Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that's obviously one of the problems that underlies um, a lot of these kind of, you know, bigger collaboration type agreements. But um, in, India took a fair bit of heat and criticism around the region. But uh, uh, I, I actually think uh, Modi was, was, was probably, you know, doing the right thing because um, the, the terms that it would have imposed on India would have, uh, would have basically restricted um, an awful lot of Indian exports, uh, particularly in the you know, generic medications field, and uh, would have really you know, opened up the Indian market even more to, uh, to China. And India runs a, a pretty big uh, balance of trade deficit with China as it stands right now. So um, I, I think you know, things here are, are going relatively okay, but, but uh, a lot of it really depends on how all nations manage to work out their um, their future relationships with China. The, the growth of China has been a real positive for the whole region, but it's now you know uh, this this sort of monster has emerged that is so much bigger than anywhere else, even you know far bigger than Japan, and is uh, is obviously um, you know protecting its own interests and uh, and very aggressively so, far more aggressively than uh, than Japan ever did when it uh, when it invested overseas. So I think the, the next the next phase of what happens in Asia is really very largely dependent on just how well. And how uh, um, equitably everybody, every nation can work out what its future relationship is going to be with uh, with China, and um, and and that yeah, you know, that could be a lot more challenging than uh, than, than people immediately realise. Do you think that's got anything to do with the trade war that's going on with the US, and they're hurting a bit from that, so they're becoming more aggressive? <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't think so, uh, because I think you know. I say this predates that for um, for something like seven years now. They've been trying to work out, 
you know how everybody should have a trade relationship. One, one thing that again I, I don't think gets a lot of coverage in the in in the in the West is um, there's um, there's a, an organization called the uh, SCO Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization. I think it stands for. And again, India is a, is a member of that. I think more than half the world's population, obviously through India and China, and a bunch of other populous countries like Turkey. Um, uh, so half the world's population is part of that, and, and Russia as well. And that's um, that's very much a, a more sort of strategic, political, uh, rather than just a trade organization. Uh, but again, there's you know there's an attempt to establish all of these alliances that are that are moving the um you know not only economic and capital market but also you know political and geopolitical um power bases far more to to the east and i think um yeah everywhere is alive to that you know trump's obviously very aware of that i'm not sure that what he's doing is the right way to deal with it but um but i'm also i'm not sure there is any any way to deal with it and i think that you know it's it's the key for Asia for the future as to how that works out, but it's 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 probably also you know pretty pretty key for what happens in the rest of the world. I mean, we look at um, look at what's happening in in Germany now with Germany seemingly in recession. Well, yes, obviously global trade is slower, global automotive exports are suffering, but um, Germany's facing the double whammy that that's happening at a time when when you know China is really being much more aggressive about um, you know maintaining its export market share its trade share and getting into uh, into areas like vehicles so I, I think a lot of what happens from here on in not just in Asia but throughout the world is really going to be about what these these future you know relationships and trade relationships and geopolitical relationships are um, you know I- imagine if uh, if you have to go back to uh, to Edinburgh, Tim, and explain to uh, to Fred the Shred's neighbour that actually China's got all the nukes now. To, to what to what extent are you um, following politics uh, here in the UK, Paul? Well, I try not to. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. But I mean that because that's the the one thing I'd say on that front is I I cannot remember a time when uh, the whole political system, not just in the UK, but specifically in the UK was as dysfunctional as it is now. No, I, I agree. But I, and I also agree with you that I think it's global. I think, you know, you know, we're all British, so we notice we notice how bad the the UK system has got. But um yeah, I think it's I think it's a global thing too. I mean maybe maybe I'm kidding myself and and, and we just, you know, we, we we look with slightly uh, tinted uh, spectacles when we look back at the past. But you know, I can't imagine that people like Juncker would ever have commanded the amount of power that they did in Europe, um, you know, 20 years ago. So, um, and, and obviously, you know, everything, everything that can be said about Trump probably has been said. So it is, it's, it's a very, it's a very, you know, depressing, um, situation globally. And I, I think, you know, one problem is that, um, that, that a lot of these characters now have a lot more influence and power over economies and over capital markets than they ever had in the past. Um, you know, governments definitely have a greater um, greater involvement in influencing um, economic outcomes than they than they did previously. Um, you know, we we, um, we we wrote a piece recently about um, comparing where we're at now with 1973 and and. Um, uh, you know, one of the things back then was that the 
the, the Fed did a certain amount of damage, as they always have throughout the history. But the the damage was limited by the fact that they um, they, they sort of knew that there was a, there was an end to their remit, and they knew there was an end to how much they could actually do. Uh, these days, you know, you, you see um, policymakers, whether it's central banks or politicians, uh, with a sort of you know ridiculously inflated sense of their own importance and their own their own significance and and you know convinced that they can um they, they can fix things that aren't really fixable and certainly that they don't have the tools to fix and and again i think that's one problem that feeds through to markets that um you know markets believe this they 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 you know they get told this stuff on a daily basis that uh, that the fed will ride to the rescue and fix things and um you know they're they're naive enough to uh, to keep swallowing that even though um you know they've, they've been burnt enough times before you say you're 1973 and the, the 70s gets a bad rap for anyone that's uh, listening i i would say I, i've started a campaign to bring back spangles um, <laughs> I've I've seen a few flares around, so I'm not sure if it, it may well be coming back. <laughs> I like the purple ones. That better be Spangles you're talking now, Paul. <laughs> uh, uh, we're not we're not going to tolerate purple flares on the uh, State of the Markets podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you you I think you're right in in terms of the way that the the markets kind of got just uh, transfixed by the the supposed power of of the central banks. There's something very Pavlovian about the whole thing. Um, my, my question would be, I mean, uh, having lived through, I mean, I was a kid in the seventies, but having lived through the seventies and and being roughly able to remember, loosely able to remember the winter of discontent, it, it does appear staggering that there's any support whatsoever for what would be the hardest left of a hard left Labour government in our country's history. I, I'm not sure that's actually true. I mean, again, if you read the Mail or the Express or the Telegraph, they tell you that. But um, I, I actually analysed the, uh, the 2017 Labour manifesto and it was, it was actually... It was, it was a whole bunch of reasonably business-friendly, sensible measures when you got behind it. Um, nothing like it was it was purported to be. I haven't looked at the manifesto this time because it's, it's too depressing. But actually, even even the measures that that I've, that I've seen reported, um, they, they they don't seem to be you know anything like as extreme as as um, as they're being painted. Um, well, na- na- national nationalisation of utilities at a price determined by the government and not by the market, for example. What, what well, about inheritance there's, tax? There's um there, there there is a big argument that certain services should actually be the responsibility of the state, and that's not um that's not particularly left wing. I mean that goes all the way back to Adam Smith, um and and I'd I'd, I'd kind of I kind of agree with that to an extent because I mean the the problem is that you know so many of the utilities have behaved so badly that they, they've sort of almost justified Adam Smith. Um, you know, there's there's obviously generally a far greater level of efficiency when you let the market run things. Um, but that level of efficiency, if it's if it's totally unchecked, can end up in the sort of price gouging and stuff that we've seen. Oh, for sure. It, it, breaks, down, it, it breaks down when you have effectively crony capitalism and you know, monopoly, monopolistic behaviour that can't be that can't be addressed by a market because there is no market. It's 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 a dominant yeah. it's a dominant player. I mean I think I'm going to an- I think I'm going to answer my own question to the extent that I think one one reason why the, the, the policies of, of the left are so appealing to younger voters is they've seen the basic the rise of crony capitalism over the last 10 years, and they're looking for anything that's an alternative to that. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's right. I can, I can totally understand that as well. Um, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see anything except 
what, for instance, Corbyn or people like Liz Warren or Bernie Sanders are saying, there is any alternative to this system that's just taken us, you know, further and further down the, uh, um, you know, down, down, down the whole, like in, in Alice in Wonderland, to, to some, you know, some really distorted reality. So, um, no, I can, I can, I can, I can, totally, I can totally understand it. And uh, look, I think, as I say, you read, you read the 2017 manifesto. Then actually, it was nowhere near as extreme as, as was painted. But then, um, you know, are, are all political manifestos a work of fiction? I don't know anybody who ever actually goes around implementing what they what they promised to in the first place. But, uh, but if that's what you if that's what you judge it on. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I can see why it's, it's a lot more attractive than, you know, another 10 years of QE and, you know, policy owned, you know, the, these are not markets. These are not markets that we have at the moment. Adam Smith wouldn't recognize these. There's, there's no, there's no invisible hand. It's a pretty damn, you know, clumsy hand in a, in a huge glove that's coming from, uh, it's coming from the Fed or the Bank of England or the Treasury or, um, or whoever. I mean, it's, it's, uh, as you say, it's a manipulated, monopolistic crony market and then getting worse. I mean, maybe the problem is also amongst the electorate as much as the politicians. One of the best, uh, the, one of the best economists we've had on, on the podcast over the last couple of years is a guy called uh, John Hearn. And I'm I'm drawing liberally now from from a presentation he he put out a, a few weeks ago uh, at the Politics Society. But he um he basically says uh, he well, he raises the following sort of um, uh, rhetorical questions: Who has heard? Who has ever heard a politician say that they cannot do something? Who would vote for a politician who says that they will not do something? Who sees cutting government spending and raising interest rates as a way to faster economic growth? And then his final point is, who sees Brexit as a way of reducing damaging national international bureaucracy? And I've done it now. I've, I've, I've mentioned the B word, so we might as well pop on to that. Uh, where do you see, in, in as much as you have a view on this stuff, where, where do you see Brexit playing out? Or how do you see Brexit playing out? Uh, it's a disaster, isn't it? I mean, the, the crazy thing here is that if the day after the, uh, the referendum, then, um, you know, if if Cameron, who was still prime minister that day, had just said to the EU, "That's it, we're out. Um, let's all let's all now, you know, work out our own treaties." And um, so let's have, let's let's have a, let's have a clean break and let's start talking trade terms. Exactly, exactly. If we done if we done that three years ago, then we'd be in a far better position today. That's for sure. We've had three years of, of paralysis and stag- you know, absolute stagnation. Um, U- UK needs to get itself as far away from the eurozone um, financially and economically as possible because the uh, the eurozone is just it's like a, it's it's a burning building it's a burning building and the roofs roofs falling in absolutely absolutely you do not want to be you know standing outside or even inside when when that happens so you, you want to be as far away as you possibly can uh, and and you know you look at the um, you, you look at Boris's supposed deal well you know. It's it's barely a Brexit. It it may be a Brexit in the future, but the the um, the connections. But by the way, we we never liked the word Brexit. We we always thought you know grout Great Britain out was a much better portmanteau <laughs> word. So so our, our 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 you know our grout is a is is really a clean is really a clean cut. Whereas the idea that I think you know there's there's um how about how about uck off UK off uck off. <laughs> <laughs> a cough sounds great to me. Um, a cough out of there. Yeah, I'm, I'm with that. Um, look, hashtag if, a cough. <laughs> if, if anything gets fixed now, 
it's still years away from being really fixed. And, you know, the amount of division that is now in the country is, uh, and, and the, you know, the, the, the boredom, the ennui, the, the, the Brexit fatigue or whatever, you know, it's just, it's just run, it's all run far too long. We can't put the clock back, but actually, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that, uh, that there should just be a hard Brexit. I, I used to think that a second referendum was the worst of all possible outcomes because I couldn't see how that would heal. I thought that would just make things even worse. But I, I, I've actually come around to a, a, probably a minority view of one these days, which is that we should have a second referendum, but it should be, you know, do we want Boris's deal? Do we want Maybot's deal? Or do we mm. want a hard Brexit? They should be the only things on offer. Remain mm. shouldn't be on offer in any kind of referendum. Mm. But if you give the people those three choices, well, uh, at least there's a sense that it is going to be democratic and that people are saying what kind of what kind of a grout they want, uh, what kind of a knockoff they want. And, um, and therefore, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a chance to start the healing from there. But, you know, at the moment, I, I just... Really, it just feels like it feels like purgatory, and it's and it's it's very very damaging. The um, you know, I saw a good piece today by a guy called uh, Tony Nash, who who was uh, making the point that you know, twenty twenty looks pretty grim for the UK because of the the price that we'll pay next year for the last three years of paralysis, um, and it's it's no consolation. But actually, whatever relationship we have with the eurozone, um, the German economy looks in a far, far worse state next year than, than however bad the British economy might get. So, mm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's even more of a catalyst for just getting, getting this thing that has been so mismanaged by every politician that's, uh, that, that's, that's, you know, tried to get involved in it, you know, that this, this revolving door of, you know, clownish Brexit secretaries, one after another, um, you know, we, we, we really just, we need to leave. We need to get on with it. We need to try and find a way to get the uh, the people of the country to buy into leaving. And I don't, I don't think that whatever the general election result is going to be is, uh, is likely to be anything that, that really helps to, to clarify that picture. I mean, you know, the, um, you talk about how bad politics has got, then, you know, f- for me, the, the, the scariest thing about British politics at the moment, well, probably other than, than Boris Johnson as PM, which is something that um, I, I just I have, you know, issues uh, just dealing with and accepting at any point. But but um, but other than that, the, the idea that somebody like Joe Swinson can somehow become, you know, uh, an important personality overnight is uh, that, that, that just that just completely baffles me. I think she's. I wouldn't believe her own hype. I mean, it's uh, she's basically she's saying she's winning. She isn't, and uh, and I I think people can see through her policy of of saying that she's going to stop Brexit is is not necessarily one that I think people really want. They that if if anything, <laughs> they they would say she could say we want a second referendum. I think that's fair enough. But saying she wants to stop Brexit is is uh, yeah. i think way too extreme but i th- you know the people have got an opportunity to vote and and i'm i'm sure they will but given what we'd like to happen and i think we're all agreed about what we'd like to happen with regard to brexit what do you th- you're in a unique position because you're familiar with everything but you're one step away and you can kind of look at it perhaps less dispassionately than maybe we do because we're we're in it what do you think will happen? How do you think that this will play out? Is there a chance that we won't actually leave, do you think? I think the way that it's been going, something that I've been saying for a while, is that we're likely to find ourselves in 
some form of a transitional arrangement, which is which is essentially what Boris's deal is. It's what uh, Theresa May's deal was. Um, we're likely to find ourselves in some kind of transitional arrangement that actually, if we're lucky, then the whole eurozone nonsense will collapse before you know the transition ever has to happen. Uh-huh. I think it's it's increasingly likely that, that Europe is going to leave the UK before the UK manages to leave Europe. <laughs> um, and I don't know that probably sounds glib, but I think you look at you look at what's going on in places like Italy and even you know and it's. Um, in some ways, it's a bit quieter, but in Spain, um, where the, the EU is, is managing to, you know, paper over um, all of the, the, the Spanish, um, you know, domestic, huge political rifts right now. Um, I, I think, you know, you can't, you can't just keep sweeping those things under the carpet. The amount of rubbish under the carpet is, 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 is really starting to show right now. Well, so there's a great line from Apocalypse Now where he says in Vietnam or in Saigon that the bullshit piled up so quickly you needed wings to stay above it. <laughs> that's that's where we're at. That's absolutely it. That's the EU. That's it, or the eurozone. But um, um, look, the, the biggest problem with the eurozone leaving us is is that um, you know under um, every deal that we've had proposed to us so far, um, the UK still remains on the hook for an awful lot of uh, you know contingent guarantees and commitments. Mm. Uh, not just the not just the annual payments, but the you know um, underlying commitments to uh, to, to underwrite uh, ECB uh, in a crisis. Um, it, it remains on, on the hook for that for uh, for far too many years to come. So, um, but I mean, let, let's let, let's be realistic though. Is there any is there any likelihood that the the the, the eurozone and the European Community could the European Union could conceivably operate without full access to the City of London, because without access to the City of London, the whole thing's just going to collapse. Yeah, you'd, you'd think so. Um, I, I, a, a good friend of mine, the economist Steve Keane, um, you know, has, has been saying, you know, one of the reasons why the the eurozone position on um, on on capital markets leaving London is nonsense is. Frankly, nowhere in Europe knows how to launder money as well as the city of London does and, and, and probably never will. Um, so um, the, just operationally, functionally, um, access to capital, the, yeah, the, the, there's no way that they can do that. And particularly, you know, when they're, when they're now heading back into the kind of um, financial and fiscal mess that I think is, is you know, it, it's, it's becoming more and more apparent in the Eurozone every single day. So, you know, Germany goes into contraction. I, I, I wrote a piece for, um, for, for CNBC, I think probably about uh, six years ago now, uh, about, you know, the state of the German banking system and how horrible it was and how these liabilities were all flooding back in. And, you know, ultimately, most of them ended up with, uh, with Deutsche Bank. And, and since then, you know, Deutsche has just basically been, you know, suffering sort of sporadic implosion after implosion after implosion. Uh, and, and, and that's, Yes, you could argue some of it's idiosyncratic. It might be down to the way that Deutsche Bank has been managed, but but it's also it's 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 a structural inevitability of um, you know the the single currency and the fact that all of the capital is so constrained that it has to flow out of the German banking system, and the German banking system just. You know, it, it isn't it isn't equal to that challenge. I'm not sure any banking system could be. But the minute you start to remove the added backstop of the City of London from that, well, you know, the eurozone falls over. Frankly, talking about investments and um, 
thinking about where to invest money around the world. Mm-hmm. If if somebody came mm-hmm. to you with say a hundred thousand pounds and said, "Look, what what I don't need this. I won't need it for the next ten years." You take it, Jeremy Corbyn. You, <laughs> what, uh, what? What would you? What would you suggest that they do with it? Where, where would you? Would you invest in gold, cryptocurrencies, equities, bonds? What? What sort of? Um, what sort of portfolio would you broadly create with that? So, so again, you know, the primary driver of that is going to be, you know, what level of risk, ten years time, how much capital do they actually need to to be there? Um, I think, um, as I say. Treasuries, but probably uh, probably shorter dated now, are, uh, are still, you know, the biggest probably defensive asset. Gold is a is a really interesting defensive asset. Um, would you look cryptos, at silver too? Silver as well? Yeah, or? yeah, we 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 would probably um, probably slightly less so right now. Um, I think silver is going to get more interesting next year. And um, why would you say? Uh, that? Well, because so so if you look at the gold silver ratio, then it's it's um, it's hugely stacked in gold's favour right now. So so silver is relatively cheap compared to gold. Uh-huh. Um, but but um, I think we need to see um, a little bit more fear for silver to get very interesting. And uh, I think for for people like myself uh, who understand the macro, but we're not day to day experts in uh, in in the relative swings between gold and silver. Uh, there's a very interesting fund that we that we use in that. The Merion have a fund managed by uh, a chap called uh, Ned Taylor Leyland, who uh, uh, had him on the who, show. who invests in both gold and silver and in equities and in bullion and, and, and tries to do the uh, the weighting between them uh, according to you know what the immediate outlook is. So uh, that's something where I think you know, maybe listeners might be might want to go and have a look at that, and might want to start sort of building positions as we get closer and closer to any events. Then um, funds like that are going to provide you know really sort of outsized levels of insurance against significant credit events uh, for, for for relatively limited exposures. You, you get you get much more bang for your buck with that than you would with just gold bullion or with treasuries. Uh, although you'll also get a lot more volatility on the way, which is why um, it, we, we think it's probably more one for next year than for now. And and so and what? How else would you apportion the the imaginary portfolio? I mean, it's another it's another way of basically saying what what do you like around the world and what do you yeah. not like in in terms yeah. of assets. So um, in the equity space. Equities just look so expensive right now that, um, and, and that, that's pretty much pretty much globally. Uh, I know that uh, you know Tim's got uh, enthusiasms about you know some some uh, parts of, uh, of Southeast Asia, but for us, we, we, we actually we're more at this part of the cycle. We're more interested in the the methodology of investing than we are in the actual region itself. So we like. We like equity exposure that has some form of protection. So that might be, uh, for instance, long short equity funds. Um, so people like like Steve Cohen or um, uh, Izzy Englander at Millennium. We, we like we like those kinds of funds that that, that um, have historically always done a really good job of limiting or avoiding downside. Um, and 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 in that space, probably the most interesting thing that we're keen on at the moment. Is um, 
there's a, a South African organization called Sanlam who have um, it was it, it was sort of a fairly traditional quant fund, I guess, equity quant fund. Uh, but they, they've they've really um, over the last few years bolted on um, artificial intelligence to that in a in a in a way that we we haven't seen anybody else manage to do. So the basic premise is that they have typically by by default a 90% exposure to MSCI world and the other 10% is held in cash. That that cash then goes and buys um, uh, put contracts to protect the value of the MSCI world holding according to the level of risk that the uh, that the AI uh, manager, so it's it's managed by a bot that the AI manager actually perceives coming from signals from the market, uh, and so uh, for instance, it's been it's been um, bouncing between about twenty uh, percent and eighty percent market exposure this year, but. Um, literally, the bot is just you know feeding signals from the market, rewriting and updating itself. It can't tell you what it's doing because it's a it's a bot. It's it's artificial intelligence, uh, but it's actually it seems to be doing a better job than any of the human managers that we know of in terms of reading those signals from the market and going and putting you know protection on at times when you most need it and taking it off most of the rest of the time. Um, uh, you know, nothing is perfect because the markets aren't perfect, but it it. Uh, it, it seems to be a reasonable way to capture maybe on average about half of the market upside and avoid the vast majority of the market downside. And for us, actually, that having that kind of approach is much, much more interesting right now than saying, well, you know, this market might be better than that one. Because the, the problem is when we reach the, you know, the event that we're expecting at some point, pretty well all markets are going to correlate to one at that stage. Everything is going to fall badly. And, and probably the American markets and probably things like the FANGs are going to be the ones that actually actually you know fall the most in that kind of environment because they're, uh, they're, they're arguably by many means the most overvalued and the most financialized. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that, that kind of an approach that limits your uh, limits your downside on uh, on on you know um, uh, an event happening is is really interesting um, and maybe we just just one one other sort of comment uh, I, I guess the fang sort of leads us into a lot of these you know disruptive tech stocks we we work <laughs> we work you know you know my views on we work I, uh, I I think that this this whole uh, unicorn private equity uh, disruptive tech bubble is is basically a complete con. I think it's financialization run mad. Uh, I think Uber and Lyft and all of these, whatever merits the businesses might or might not have had, um, I think this whole process that um, SoftBank and SoftBank's funds and pretty much all of Silicon Valley have been engaging in for the past few years of creating these ridiculously high artificial valuations in in private companies uh, and then trying to force exposure of those onto the markets you know for me this is this is almost analogous to uh, to you know subprime in uh, in 2007 it's uh, i think you know softbank is the uh, is the best earns of uh, of today to be honest with you so so that stuff Absolutely terrifies me. That could that could well be something that uh, the the bursts the uh, the global bubble when we find out that you know um, 
SoftBank and Vision Fund and um, and Silicon Valley's private equity business has really just been conning all of us for the last few years. And uh, uh, these unicorns that are that are fast becoming undercorns are actually going to end up as zero corns. I was I was going to actually just ask the question: what what uh, what are you looking at for potential signals to tell you that the that this credit event is going to happen? So I guess that that's one. Just looking at those share prices, are you are you, look, are you looking elsewhere? Are you looking at certain um, certain corporate bond yields or, or 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 any other types of signals, like say a rush up in gold price? Yeah, look, I, I think I think there's there's a hundred sort of potential signals that that, that you know we, we try to monitor every week. Um, uh, gold price activity and and gold silver ratio as well. You know they're they're really interesting. Um, I think the uh, let's say the credit market terrifies us. The high yield and the amount of triple B and and you know we haven't really seen downgrades happening significantly yet although you know any change in the in the volatility in the credit market is something to really watch for um but but also uh you know there's lots of um there's lots of potential signals to look at in um in the equity markets as well in 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 um you know particularly if you look at the results numbers um a, a lot of the you know, leading indicator equities, things like, uh, you know, UK recruitment companies have been coming out with profit downgrades. Um, that's a, that's a really interesting sign of just how bad things are. So when we look at a lot of the, uh, the indicators that we do and, and, you know, in, in, in China, for instance, um, you know, if we if we look at some of the more unofficial indices measuring things like electricity consumption, you know, car sales in China. You look you look at automotive, you know, new car registrations in China uh, for the last year or so. That is an absolute disaster. Uh, and, and so, all, all these things are all telling us something. It, it's the the difficult thing is aggregating those and um, and actually trying to trying to you know make any kind of overall sense out of them because uh, you really get them all pointing in the same direction at the same time. Um, even, um, you know, it's, it's something I look at for fun, but I don't really uh, ascribe a great deal of, um, uh, a great deal of weight to is, uh, you know, if you look at uh, the GDP now measure of the Atlanta fed, um, you know, that's, it's, it's a potential warning sign. Uh, it's now, you know, around about sort of 1% GDP that it's indicating. Uh, so U.S. economy slowing. If you look at the manufacturing sector in the States, um, so you look at, you know, the PMIs, even if you look at manufacturing wages in the States, you know, all of these things that are, that, that ultimately have a feedback loop. If, you know, if we look at how much the bottom half of Americans are actually earning and how much they're able to spend back into the economy. Yeah, all of these things are, are, are indicators. And then, and currently, the trajectory is still negative. For, for all the positivity that's fed back into the equity markets in the last few weeks, um, most of the economic trajectory is still very, very negative. So, so what we're seeing at, at the moment is a lot of the real economic measures that we monitor and that we try and aggregate and make sense of are still pointing, you know, are still trending negatively while equity markets have, you know, rebounded reasonably strongly. Um, and so that, you know, that kind of divergence, it can continue for, for, you know, a while it can continue for quite significant periods. But if we, if it keeps diverging, 
at some point, that's that's an indicator to us that each day we're getting getting closer to crisis. So one of the measures we we were using, although it's it's um, it's it's no longer quite giving the signal that it was, is um, you know Taiwanese equities we're always seeing as being a leading global indicator because of the nature of a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the business activity in Taiwan, and obviously copper is always seen as being a, a leading indicator. Um, uh, and there was again a massive divergence between uh, copper and Taiwanese equities for most part of this year. That's now starting to um, converge a little bit. Copper has had some relief over the last week or two so if if that kind of continues if we get if we get that uh, divergence starting to narrow a little bit that might make us that might make us feel a little bit more comfortable so they're they're the kind of signs that we're we're looking at if those divergences uh all of these divergences end up starting to moderate or narrow it will make us uh think that maybe the uh the the event has been delayed a little bit longer yeah, have you seen any any activity in cryptocurrencies out in Thailand from where from from your point of view? Do you, and do, what do you personally mm. think of them? Okay, no, uh, good point. So uh, yeah, we we, um, we we actually offer a uh, cryptocurrency advisory service. Um, we then try and talk people out of using it, frankly, because we we we, um, <laughs> we we actually we, we've got we've got this sort of perverse view that we think cryptocurrencies are slightly immoral in that. Um, at the moment, we, we think the vast majority of activity that's taking place in cryptos is manipulated activity. That it is, it is essentially still pump and dump. And, and, and we think you've got to try and separate that. You've got to separate the pricing from the underlying asset. What, what, what's going on in the pricing in the crypto world at the moment is pretty much fake as far as we can see. What, the cryptos themselves are a really interesting space. Uh, and we think that there could really be something in that space that's very interesting in years to come. We don't we don't think anything's quite cracked it yet. We haven't seen a crypto that we we think um, sort of ticks all the boxes. Uh, we certainly don't think that the Bitcoin uh, is is uh, is able to do that. But it's possible that Bitcoin could certainly evolve to to uh, to tick the boxes, or it's possible something else could come along. That does, uh, you know, that does what 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 uh, what Bitcoin should do. So we so we're watching the space really really closely, um, and and we you know we think even if it's a manipulated market, there there are still opportunities there sometimes because um, you know you could argue all markets are manipulated to some extent. So as long as you realise you know what you're buying is something that's not being priced by a market. It's being priced by people who are manipulating it, but, but you may be able to uh, to take advantage of that. Well, um, then, you know, that that is that is potentially an opportunity. There's a, there's a great um, Bloomberg presenter called uh, Tracy Alloway, who's based in Hong Kong, and she, she sent out a tweet the other day saying, you know, when's, when's everybody going to realize that actually um, blockchain is really just um, a whole bunch of Excel sheets that everybody shares with each other? Uh, and and I, th- I think, you know, it's slightly extreme, but it, but it, but it makes the point that most people don't really understand what the underlying technology is. Blockchain has got the capability to be an awful lot more than that. But at the moment, um, I think the risk is that people are just limiting it to, to, to understanding it in terms of the price action 
of very few cryptocurrencies, most of which are getting, you know, manipulated by groups using uh, the Telegram app or whatever. So um, it's 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 a space where I, like all things, I, I expect a lot more to come from it in future years than than is available from it right now. Um, and and you know we're watching it very much in that space, but. Again, it's 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 something where even if it's manipulated, people are likely to start manipulating it when there's an, another fear trade going around, and yeah, on that basis, you know, there could be, there could be an opportunity, and we're not averse to people allocating a really tiny proportion of their portfolios to um, to cryptos at the right time. What box does Bitcoin have to tick before you think it's fully fledged? Um, I think we've got to see, we've got to see genuine trading. Um, you've got to see trading where it, it really is, you know, market-based trading, and the pricing reflects that, rather than, you know, manipulator trading where you know ninety percent of it is left pocket to right pocket, and 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 the pricing being determined by that. So we we need a sufficiently transparent sufficiently ordered pricing mechanism before bitcoin becomes becomes interesting as an investment at the moment it's interesting as a technological solution but the pricing and the technological solution are just so disconnected so anything that that really um, I, I think we need to see, we need to understand better what the utility is, because I think I think everything that's happened in the Bitcoin market for the past few years has actually really set Bitcoin back. It's been a real distraction for Bitcoin to be able to create a utility for itself. There, there, there's, um, you know, a, a good friend of mine, Jerry Brady, who, who was, I think, one of the first people to really understand Bitcoin, um, described it a few years ago as a, um, a solution to a problem that, that doesn't really exist. I think that's, as of today, that's probably true. But I think that's more because it's not being applied in the right way. And I think the, the whole distraction of what we saw with Bitcoin pricing over um, over the last few years has really you know it's taken everybody's eyes off the ball as to as to what Bitcoin could do outside a manipulated uh, world run by by you know central banks and policymakers. There's there's definitely there's definitely a need for you know um, a currency that isn't manipulated by 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 governments, but having a, a currency that's manipulated by a few traders who are all connected to each other on Telegram is not the answer to that. We need we need something that has some genuine method of open validation uh, in, in terms of how it gets traded. Possibly one of the problems of that is it needs to be more widely adopted and used in day-to-day transactions. And until it becomes mm. perhaps simpler to do that, we're not going to get that that sort of uptake. Yeah. I mean, because no, it, definitely, if, if it's used in the market, the market validates the price. Yeah. Absolutely, that becomes the best validation you can get. Yes, indeed. Brilliant. Well, Tim, have you? What would you think? Should we go to media picks? Yeah, I've no, I've nothing to add to that, so I'm happy to, to go to the the media round. Media round. I don't know, Paul, whether Tim's warned you about this or whether we've just uh, <laughs> <laughs> we caught you on the hop. Go on, tell me. Uh, well, basically, what we like to do is um, we like to share sort of 
what we call media picks, which is it doesn't have to be market related, but it just anything that you think is either really cool and you'd like to share it or, you know, an interesting book, an interesting film, uh, blog, YouTube link, anything, podcast, could be could be anything at all that you that you happen to really love. And if we were in a pub somewhere chatting, you say, oh, by the way, I've just seen this. It's really good. I think you'd like it. Some, something that, that sort of ticks those boxes could also be something that you thought was going to be great and ended up being absolutely terrible. And therefore you try and warn us against it. Um, so that that's all that could also okay. take the box too. But perhaps if we could go to Tim first to give you a little bit of time to think, and then we'll come back to you. Would that be all right? <laughs> Absolutely, fantastic. Thank you. Okay, Tim, what's uh, what's yours for this week? So Paul mentioned AI um, last night. I had um, the, the privilege of watching AlphaGo, the movie, which is about AlphaGo, the uh, Google DeepMind project. Oh um, yes, I, I don't know if you've ever. I've never. I've never. Have, have either of you guys played Go? No, no, I haven't. But I know that it was considered to be the most complicated game mm. and that they thought that a computer could never play it. So it's it's like, I mean, I, I've never played it, but from what I learned last night, it's basically you, 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 try, and, you try and win space on the board and you use just black, black counters and, and white counters. So it looks a little bit like Othello for anyone that's played Othello, but it's much bigger than that. There are more board configurations for Go than there are atoms in the observable universe. And for that reason, it, they said even if you used every computer in the world, it would take a million years to, you know, to work out how to beat a, a grandmaster. So Google DeepMind set a challenge. There's a guy called Demis Hassabis, who's the CEO of DeepMind, co-founder of, of DeepMind. And I heard, I heard him on the radio with Jim Al-Khalili a few days ago and then thought, oh, this might be quite fun to, to follow up with. So this is from Netflix. But it's the account of... Basically, um, Google DeepMind, or AlphaGo, I should say, um, challenging a guy called Lee Sedol, who's the 18-world title Go world champion, a South Korean guy. Um, and without giving the game away, um, well, I, w- I won't give the game away, so, so we can le- leave it without, without sort of spoilers. Mm. But, but it, it gives rise, watching this, it gives rise to all kinds of, slightly uncanny trepidations about the future of of technology about the future of humanity and um seeing seeing a world champion um getting crushed by a bit of software that you can't even see is surprisingly moving mm. um it reminded me i don't know why it reminded me a little bit of a film that i, I might possibly have mentioned long ago on the podcast which is a film called uh, king of kong yes and, King of oh, Kong, King of Kong, film. King of Kong is an absolute belter, and I, oh, I, I am indebted film. to my colleague Killian Connolly for having found it. So, for anyone that hasn't seen it, King of Kong is about the world, the the the, the title match for the world champion of Donkey Kong in the states. And if it sounds bizarre, it is, but oh, it's it's, it's it, it, but yeah, that is yeah. understating the amount of raw human emotion. Uh, yes. That's in the film. So it's, it's an incredible watch. And AlphaGo, the movie, gives rise to some of the same same fears and and hopes and all the rest. So it's it's a very strange it's a very strange experience. But suffice to say, when you're watching a Lisa Doll, who is this eighteen Dan world champion at Go, playing basically a bit of kit, a bit of software. Um, it is you, it, after a while you start to you start to think very seriously where your sympathies lie, and they don't lie with the software. Put it that way. 
So it's, it's 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 an incredible film. Very very interesting film. I remember. Sorry to sorry cut in there, but um, I remember when um, Gary Kasparov was playing Big Blue, and I think it was mm. the same the same thing. You had that. This, yeah, very very of, similar, very similar setup. Yeah, but um, it was also interesting that we've just hit, according to Google, quantum supremacy with regard to mm. quantum computing. That's a follow up to the Bourne supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much fighting, but yeah, there's um, but there's there's this idea that you know quant- quantum computing will well will I I can't see how the current um, cryptocurrencies are going to survive um, quantum computing. So in my view, the clock's ticking as as much as I have a lot of sympathy for them. I think it's an interesting point that quantum computers could completely unravel all what we have in terms of security on the internet um, with our existing computers. And we, we we think it's 10 years away, but if they have actually achieved quantum supremacy um, now, which if you're not familiar with it, it's just basically the ability for a quantum computer to, to, to calculate instructions um, that a normal computer is not unable to do. So in other words, much faster, um, hence the supremacy element of it. Um, if they've already achieved that, and there is some debate out there as to whether they actually have, because there's certain semantics about whether they have or not, um, then I think that's that's a very interesting thing that, of course, we need to follow. So um, that that could be a big factor in in how um, Bitcoin plays out or cryptocurrencies play out. But but that that's a brilliant pick, Tim. I'm really looking forward to watching that. In fact, I'd like to watch that. This afternoon, if I can, but I doubt I doubt I'll have the time. But um, my my but that makes me um sorry to say that makes me feel better about my my bot managed my AI managed uh, equity portfolio in <laughs> yes, that case. So yes, uh, yes. a good shout out for that. <laughs> the, the the other thing, going back to the Kasparov thing, I mean, the, 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 there was something incredibly dramatic. I mean, it's 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 almost like a existential sort of dilemma for humanity, isn't it? When we see you know Kasparov getting beaten by uh, by Big Blue, and I guess there's uh there's there's Probably something similar in this AlphaGo thing. So I'm, you say it's on Netflix, Tim? Yeah, it's on Netflix, and the, it, that also reminds me. I think this is this is further ago in 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 time when I think it was Karpov versus Korchnoi, and there was a, so this was human human mano a mano, and uh, they, they people started to suspect that the people were being sent secret codes by the color of the yogurt pots. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I've not heard that, but that sounds amazing. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, so, uh, Paul, have you had time to think of one? Well, so, so I have. So, firstly, let, can I give a couple of shout outs for a couple of podcasts? One, uh, every couple of months, I, re- I record a podcast with uh, this chap, Jerry Brady, that I mentioned. Um, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it, it goes under the snappy title of Our Brave New Economic World or O-B-N-E-W, um, and uh, I guess I, I I probably shouldn't count that because they say half of that is me, uh, but I learned <laughs> an awful lot from Jerry, so uh, so that's the, that's a good bit to listen to. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the another one, uh, another financial uh, podcast that I I, uh, I listen to regularly is um, uh, Odd Lots, which is a, a Bloomberg one, but it's it's actually um, again getting into you know its teeth into macro issues as opposed to you know the day to day froth. Uh, so uh, that that I'd recommend in terms of. Um, Media recently, uh, the thing that struck me the most, I think, is uh, is, is the the Judy Garland film Judy with uh, Renee Zellweger. Have, have either of you seen that? No, but I hear it's excellent. 
I'm proud to say I'm in, I'm in, I'm in touch with my feminine side, but I've yet to, yet to embrace my inner garland. <laughs> okay, no, it is surprisingly good. Um, and again, it's just, uh, it's, 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 you know, a stru- very human struggle at, uh, you know, very, very sort of critical point of her life. Um, and uh, I, I, I came out of it sort of, you know, feeling slightly soppy and, and you know, um, pretending it was just a runny nose that I, I was reaching for for the tissues. So uh, I think that's a that's a that's a pretty good uh, emotional experience. Um, in 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 terms of in terms of books, I, I did mention to to Tim recently that I uh, I'd recently reread. I've been prompted to reread um, Joseph Heller's As Good as Gold, which was his follow up to Catch Twenty Two, and and the story is basically. Um, an academic uh, sort of accidentally finds himself as uh, a, a senior politician in, uh, in, in, in America um, and sort of lifts the veil on how American politics supposedly works. The, the, uh, one of the inverted commas stars of the book is a, uh, is, is a government spokesman called Ralph Newsom who goes around constantly saying things like, I can absolutely definitely confirm that fact, unless, of course, I can't. And uh, it just, um, I think I was, I was tempted to go and reread it after seeing a couple of Jerome Powell's recent performances because he, uh, uh, the poor guy just seems to have been, you know, beaten up so badly that he, uh, he reminds me of Ralph Newsom now with his, you know, yes, we're definitely not raising rates anymore unless, of course, we are. So if you, if you want to try and find a way to, to, to laugh at the ridiculousness of the, uh, uh, the, the political and financial um, situation of, uh, of of the world right now and the policymakers right now than uh, as good as gold by Joseph Heller. Fantastic. Well, ne- never believe anything until it's been officially denied. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. yeah, that's right. That's right. Excellent. Well, I was going to mention the laundromat because that's one that uh, Tim mm. actually put me onto. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a, it's a yes. great film. But I don't I don't feel I can actually put that one for, forward, Tim, because it was yours. No, no, no. Go for it. Go for it. I, I, I got it. I got it via a recommendation from a chap called Heine Beretta. So uh, it wasn't a TP original. No, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing original under the sun. To be fair, but yeah. yeah so the Laundromat is a, um, a fantastic documentary in the style of The Big Short, which is on Netflix um, about the uh, the characters investigating um, insurance fraud, and it leads a pair of, of the characters to the flamboyant Panama City law partners exploiting the world's financial system. So it's um, it for, for people who who like The Big Short, it's. It's definitely got a its own style to it, and I think it, it, that takes a little bit of adjustment. Um, but it's got quite it, a good cast as well. It's got a great cast. It's got a fantastic cast. But I think, I, yeah, it's very, very, uh, very watchable, very interesting, and uh, you know, uh, I think accessible to to people who are not non financial as well. But uh, I think that's a that's a great uh, great documentary to watch. So, Paul, I look- knew. Uh- I knew that Meryl Streep was great, but I didn't realise how great she was until I watched uh, until I watched that film. You know, that's I thought exactly the same thing. I, I always thought she was slightly overrated. Um, you know, one of these people that just everybody always just said how fantastic they were. I always thought <laughs> Renny Zellweger was 
amazing actually so i'm not surprised she's done well in in uh, in judy but uh, yeah but after the laundromat i had a renewed respect for her so excellent um so paul look thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been an absolute thank pleasure you. um i'm sure there's going to be there's going to be people out there who, who will want to get in contact with you and could you just give us the best ways to do that via your website email twitter whatever you prefer Sure. Easiest way, just drop me a note. So, uh, Paul at mbmg-investment.com. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Yeah, uh, it's at Paul Gambles too, Fantastic. and that's because I uh, I originally registered at Paul Gambles and then lost the password and <laughs> couldn't get myself reconnected to it. So there is a dead Twitter somewhere at Paul Gambles, but the live one is at Paul Gambles too. Number two, right? That's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Well, thank is you. There's a Paul Gambles double zero. Is that you, Paul, as well? I uh, know. I think I only lost the password once. That, that must be an imposter. Ah, okay. <laughs> Right. Well, I, I can talk about Twitter handles. Mine, mine's uh, mine's been described as a password, so very difficult to remember. <laughs> but that's br absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Paul Gambles, for coming on the show. Uh, it's been brilliant. And uh, thank you, know, you both. Yeah. Take care, and we'll hope to have you, you back too. soon. Anytime. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, Paul. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Paul. Bye bye. And thank you to my co-host Tim Price. It's been brilliant. Thanks, Paul. And thank you to everyone listening. We really appreciate it, and we'll catch you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.